Amen. You may have noticed that one of our, we've sung a couple of those songs last week. Uh, both thematically go with what we're talking about today, and it's good to repeat some of our, our singing. Uh, we are going through the Psalms, and this idea of coming as you are, the Psalms really call us in to engaging our emotions, the realities of our life. A theme that's been emerging is that the only way to understand the truths of Scripture is not through abstract theology, but by engaging it as we process it in our daily lives, but through the ups and the downs. Uh, this last Wednesday, Jason led us through the discipline of singing, and, and one of the concepts of singing is it's a way to engage with our whole body, and in the same way, when we come to the Psalms, whether we're reading or singing them, what we're doing is we're, it's, it's teaching us to process our lives. So we're reading not only the Psalms as they are here, but we're learning to go, okay, now I'm learning language and, and posture for how to process the ups and the downs of, of my own life. And we're on a trajectory. We started in 16 where David is laying out sort of a foundational concept that we live in a, in a broken world. And he says, preserve me, O God, and you I take refuge. I have no good apart from you. And it ends with, uh, teach me your paths and I long to be with you forevermore, pleasures forevermore. He's laying out the framework of a life this side of heaven. Last week we looked at Psalm 42. You may remember, as the deer pants for, for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. The psalmist there is teaching us that we are in our separation from God. We are to long for him. In fact, it goes on to say, I speak to my soul. I say to my soul, why are you downcast? We spoke about our need to actually take the gospel and talk to our soul Otherwise, as Martin Lloyd-Jones has said, our soul will be talking back to us. And so we're processing this trajectory. Uh, next week, we'll be looking at Psalm 96, which is a much more upbeat psalm. It's ascribed to the Lord praise. So we're moving from through the valley on up. But this week in 77, it's going to be one of the more dark places. Uh, 77 talks about the day of trouble. A lot of speech experts would say right now is the point where people have decided whether they're going to stay involved in the conversation or not. Where are you when you heard that? Were you like, okay, I'm out. Let me encourage you that what we keep saying over and over is rather than shutting down with trouble, what if? What if the gospel message is cheer up? You have so much you can gain by processing the struggles of your life and going through the valley with the Lord, you will actually grow and grow in your holiness and grow in your likeness to him. That's what I encourage you to do this morning as we look at this psalm. We're gonna, it's a 20-verse psalm. I would like you to know about it um, before we read it, just because I know for most of us we haven't pre-read. I pre-read this, thankfully, but many of you have not. I was trying to use the pronouns that include myself, but then you might think I was lazy and have not read the psalm yet. Um, there, there, I, I sort of am breaking it up into four or five sections. The first one is going to be uh, just a few verses where the psalmist is, is what, crying out and what he's doing you could actually observe objectively on a camera or if you're present. Then in verse four, it's more subjective. It's what's going on internally. He's remembering, he's meditating, he's making this diligent search. And then verses seven through nine are these awesome questions the actual content of this search. 
And then finally, 10 through 20 really are uh, him turning the corner and appealing to what God has done in salvation. And so he turns from looking at himself to looking at the, the larger story arc, which really is the concept we're going to talk about. But at the very end, he does bring up uh, Moses and Aaron and the Exodus and going through the water. And so kind of picking up from last week, remember going on a bear hunt, we have to go through it. That concept continues that the way we grow is by going through the pain because Jesus is walking with us through that pain. And as we do that, we're, we're wanting to re-engage the meta story, that is the arc of the scripture with our individual lives. That's our goal. But we have to do it through experiencing these things. So let's read it together. And as we read it, I've actually had the slides broken up so I can kind of let you know the part we're in. There's only 20 verses, but I just don't want you to get lost in the middle. So let's read them together. Here are the first three verses where we're introduced to the situation. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. And now we're moving into verse 4 where we start to see him subjectively move into some deeper places. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. And here are the questions the spirit has led the psalmist to ask. Will the Lord spurn me forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? And then verse 10 transitions to the rest of the psalm. Then I said, I will appeal to this. To the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. Your, what God is great like your, our God. You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You, with your arm, redeemed your people, the children of Jacob, and Joseph. And now to finish up the psalm, these last few verses, he actually gets even closer to the imagery of redemption when he says, when the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water, the skies gave forth thunder, your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. This is the word of our Lord. Father, we praise you for this psalm. We praise you for the way you've inspired these words, and even now your spirit opens our eyes to the, to the rich beauty of re-engaging our story. Lord, when we are troubled, we are so quick to run from you, to doubt you, maybe just to ignore you, and yet this psalmist is showing us what courage looks like to stay, to process, to, to pray, to cry out, and ultimately to remember 
freshly all of the glory you have done to us and for us. You have sent your son. You've rescued us. You've named us, adopted us. And Lord, one day we will be with you in heaven. And we are in awe of these truths. But so often those truths can feel distant. So I pray this morning you would make them just a little bit more real to us as we process the reality of walking with you this life. Amen. So one of the concepts I'm kind of processing this morning is this need for understand story, especially the, the idea that the Bible is one story. I think oftentimes where we go wrong in Christianity is we start to read it sort of little parts. We don't see how it flows. Yet for most Christians, once you start to see the whole story work together, it, it, it draws you in, especially when you begin to see how you fit into that story. A, a, a quick illustration, years ago I read a book called Bird by Bird, Anne Lamont. I highly recommend it if you're interested in writing at all. She's a memoir writer mostly, but she wrote fiction. And in this book she's talking about the process of writing, and in her chapter on plot, she tells the story of young, in her younger years. She wrote what she thought was this amazing novel. She's in the process of writing it. She has an advance. She spends that money. She's living on it. And as she's sending in parts of the book, her publisher keeps reading them and saying, it's not working. Like, I can see why you like it. I can see how there's good description and good dialogue or whatever, but the thing's not working. And, and she's getting nervous, and she keeps trying, and finally she flies to New York, sits down in front of him, and starts trying to pitch it, and he's like, Ann, I've read it again. I read it all night last night, and it's just not going to work. And basically the project was dead on the floor, and she leaves and rents a house, and she's beside herself. And she tells the story of taking this manuscript and laying down pieces of it and trying to figure out how they fit together and noticing that this doesn't work and she needs to add stuff to that and, and this needs to be connected to this. And as she starts to really engage it, she realizes she had not brought plot into the story. And plot isn't just, how you, isn't just A to B to C, but it's the reason. Why did that character do that thing leading to this action, et cetera, et cetera? Stories have to have reason. And, and that's true in, in real life, isn't it? Like we don't just, scientists don't just think things pop up out of nowhere. Things are connected. Life works together. And it's the same with scripture. So she finally takes that mess, types up what she calls a plot treatment, turns it in, and he loved it. And she says it's her best novel still today. And so the truth is that sometimes when we're disheveled and things aren't working, we need to go back and ask the question, what's the story? Like, how does this fit together? And that's exactly what our psalmist is doing. He's crying aloud. He's in a day of trouble. Things aren't making sense. And it's time for him to go back to the story and find out how what's happening in his life fits in. And I want to draw your attention to this place early on in verse 2 where he says, My soul refuses to be comforted. Now, that's a fascinating thing because what he's saying is um, none of the things that have brought comfort are working. Whatever's going on right now in my life is so problematic that the things I've turned to in the past, some good, some bad, my very understanding of even who God is is not fitting into the mix, and he's crying out. And so my encouragement to all of us as we face 
not only the large days of trouble, every one of us will face certain things that are just beyond imagination. But please understand that a lot of times it's the little things that are also troubling if we could learn both in the little things and the large ways to reconnect to the story, then we're going to begin to understand better who God is and who we are in God. That's the goal this morning in the next few minutes to try to unpack that. And, and the first thought would be this, and I just, again, I'm going to try to prove these things to you, but every problem in your life is a story problem. Every problem in our life, when we come up to a problem, it's a story problem. What do I mean? Well, if you think about a story, it has the introduction and then the problem that comes in and then the, and then the resolution, the, the way it kind of gets solved and the climax of the denouement. Well, that's the story of the Bible, creation, fall, redemption, and then consummation. The Bible came first, and now the rest of humanity, that's what makes sense. We understand a story has to have these problems. But when a problem happens and you're reading a story, you're not shocked. But the character is. If the character were a real person, they're not going, this is exactly what we need in life. We need a little bit of a problem, don't we? We need a man versus man. A, a, we need a, no. The character is like, what's happening to me? And then the story unfolds. One of our uh, children, I won't name the person, I've always tried to avoid that, at about the age of three, was suffering from their first cold or flu or strep throat, I can't remember. But this child, at the height of feeling the, the symptoms, and as parents we knew that everything was fine, cried out, why is this happening to me? And Emily and I unfortunately probably laughed. She's laughing right now. But the more I think about that, I'm like, that's the exact right question. Like, I wake up, I play games and toys and get fed, and life is great. And now, I didn't do anything wrong. I'm feeling horrible. Why is this happening to me? And it implies the fact that something has been ruptured. Shalom has been damaged. And that is important, that we pay attention to these things. The psalmist says in verses 5 and 6, I consider the days of old, the years long ago. And he asks this question, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. What's he doing? The psalmist is saying, here's a problem. It doesn't make any sense. So I need to go back and rethink. I need to go back and examine the story. I need to go back and find out why is this not working. And so the question is this, when you have a problem that comes your way, do you see this as something that's an opportunity, as hard as it is, to grow? Or does it simply feel like some problem has happened outside of time and space that you weren't supposed to have happened, and now you've got to get this behind you as quickly as possible to get back on the trajectory you've planned out for yourself? Because that's what most of us do. That's what I do. I know where I'm going. God's not quite sure where I'm going. I know where I'm going. And he's like, no, no, I know exactly the story. Do you? So how do we get there? How do we transition to seeing it this way? When I got into youth ministry, uh, the advice I was given that I, I'm sad to say I don't know that I've ever followed, my, my family can attest to this, is this. You're a youth minister and a child, like a, a student, is either in person on a Coke, what do we call those, Coke dates or one-on-ones is what RUF calls them, or on the phone, back when people talked on those, you 
you would hear a child, a student start to just start telling you a problem. Like, here's a problem, and they're complaining, and they're still, and as the youth leader, you're thinking, I need to give advice, right? That's what I'm supposed to do. And he said, you have to do three saws. Person's complaining. <sighs> Most of us would go right in. I heard what you said, and here's my thought. He says, no, 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 stay quiet. And then eventually that, that student will start to go into round two about the complaint. I mean, and then they'll start talking more. So here would be an example. My parents are so strict. I can't believe it. They took my phone away. I got, la, 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 la. And you wait. And then they go, I mean, now I don't have Snapchat. I can't connect to my friends. And I don't, I feel like I'm by myself. And you wait one more time. Wait again. This is impossible. You need Jesus to do this. And then finally, the student might say something like, I mean, I just feel lonely. I just feel like I'm all alone. Bingo. We got to the story. We got to the problem. Do you do that with yourself? Do you allow yourself, when you have a problem, to process it and get to the bottom of it with the Lord? Because it's in getting to that story question, what, what's the issue behind the issue, that sets us up to finally going, what is God going to do with this dilemma? And so that leads us to our second thought. We need to ask these hard questions <clears throat> to get to the story, right? And that's exactly what we talked about in the beginning. You'll see that in verse 7 through 9, the, the psalmist is asking these awesome questions. And it's interesting because if you go back to Anne Lamont, she had to do that. Like, she has to go, why is this happening to this person, and, and why is this connecting to that thing? And, and you say, well, that, Ryan, I, I'm sort of sick of this story concept. I mean, you're taking it too far. But what is Jesus called in Hebrews 12? He's the author and perfecter of our faith. It is a story. And our job is to let him be the author. And one of the ways we do that is we ask these questions. As I was reading this passage, I'm going to ask these questions. I just kept thinking about soap opera questions. I don't remember why as a kid I heard these. I don't know if it was in the evening. I'm hoping I didn't watch soap operas. I can't remember. Although I think I probably got through a, went through a phase. But, but at the end of a soap opera or in the evening when they're advertising, them, what do they do? Like, why will Angela, you know, hit Dorothy in the face because she stole Steve, you know? And it's like, I don't know, but I'm tuning in. Well, that's a little bit how these questions feel. Like, they're not rhetorical questions, meaning obvious answers. But they're also not, like, legitimate questions where I think the psalmist is actually about to walk away from the faith. They have some sort of interesting character to them that promotes yearning for more information. So let me read them to you. Verses 7 to 9. Will the Lord, will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up compassion? I think questions are important. I, I think when we're struggling, we're being told maybe we need to go through this wrestling. His spirit makes this diligent search. And what's happening is this psalmist is saying, this is what it looks like to engage painful things. Think of Job. Right? You all know the story of Job. He was the most righteous person on earth. So righteous that Satan's like, I'm going after that one. Is that okay, God? And everything that could happen negatively did. And then these people show up to start asking questions. 
and sort of trying to look in. And here's the sort of the setup. Job, if you do what you're supposed to do, these things won't happen. So you've done something wrong. And it sort of goes on for a long time. And finally, Job's like, I've not done wrong things. I've done it all right, which is partially true. I mean, he hadn't done the things they were accusing him of, and, and he hadn't been secretly harboring things. But, but then we transition in, verse, in chapter 32 to a new person named Elihu, who is most likely a picture of Christ. But at the beginning, the narration says, so these three men ceased to answer Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. And I don't know that the writer, that they're saying Job was self-righteous, but it does come across that way at times. But more than that, it's sort of this trick of like, on one hand, he hadn't done what they said, but on the other hand, certainly there's more to the story than what he thought. Because the gospel is not set up to where when you do the right behavior, good things happen. When you do bad behavior, bad things happen. That's not the gospel. The gospel is, is this world is broken Jesus is rescuing us and has rescued us, and now we follow him into glory. And for Job, I think he needed to hear that freshly in light of these problems. And in chapter 42, he finally answers the Lord by saying, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. And he goes on to say in verse 5, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you changed. For Job, God changed. God doesn't change, but Job's perception of God changed. He's a Hebrew. He doesn't actually mean I can visibly see God. Rather, poetically, he's saying, who you are has just become more clear to me. In 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says famously at the end of this love chapter, for now we see into a mirror dimly, but then we will see face to face. And I was talking to some friends recently and it just dawned on me like a mirror reflects you. I mean, I think we all knew that. That didn't dawn on me. The thought that why, but yet the, the metaphor seems to be that when we go to heaven, we'll see Jesus. So I did, you know, I looked up the Greek. Like is this, could it be mirror or could it be like a looking glass? And even early commentaries like Calvin and others say, no, no, this is a mirror. And I, and I just want us to understand, number one, the goal is to see Jesus face to face, and that happens in heaven. But as you study what Paul's doing in 1 Corinthians 13, he's encouraging the Corinthians to better understand the gospel and who Christ is by loving one another, which will also, in this life, make that mirror less dim. But isn't it fascinating that possibly what Paul's saying. I'm just going to use the word possibly. You can't see yourself until you see Jesus. That how you think you, oh, I know myself so well. No, you do not know yourself so well until you know Jesus well. And to the degree that we can see Jesus, we can understand ourselves and our story. And so this process of growing in this life is the need to see the true story. And that's exactly what happens in our psalms, psalmist's life, he, he re-engages, and we're moving to our final point, the actual story of his own salvation, and that's where he seems to finally understand it, though it ends 
uh, kind of at a cliff note, we know the end of the story. And so he's basically coming to this place where he's able to understand all of my problems, all of my pain has been solved in God. Notice the transition is in verse 10. He says, then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. Not to my years, not to what I've done, to what the right hand of God has done, whom we now know to be Jesus. What I love about this psalm and the way he moves into the final verses is he doesn't just quote the Exodus account. He says, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder your work. So I meditate on your mighty deeds. And then notice in verse 16, this language that is overwhelmingly powerful. Like, when the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. Why is he doing that? Well, I don't know what's going on in this psalmist's life, but, but most likely the poetic concept there is these are things that are frightening in my world. But God, they're afraid of you. You are so powerful, they run from you. And as you track through the rest of that story, he finishes it by saying your way was through the sea. Your path through the great waters and your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. He's already named Jacob and Joseph. You know, Jacob is also named Israel, has the 12 sons. Joseph is the one who makes way the the ability to stay in Egypt during the famine. And then the very next book of the Bible, 400 years later, the Exodus comes when Moses is called with his brother Aaron to rescue those people who become slaves through the water, and it's a picture of our redemption in Christ. So as I was preparing for this, I rewatched Moana. Who's seen Moana? Love that movie. Uh, Bonnie watched it faithfully with me. Moana is a story, and I'm not going to spend very long, so if you don't like what I say, you can go watch it. But Moana, because it's like, I can't tell the whole story. She's a strong-willed daughter of a Polynesian village. She has this urge to go beyond the reef. This Polynesian village chief has decided because of something that happened in his story, traumatically, that we don't go beyond the reef. And that works for a while, but things stagnate and the, and the, the, the village starts to, the vegetation and the fish and things are dying out because they're made to go beyond the reef they're made to be wayfinders as a, as a population, but they'd forgotten their story. But she feels that calling, goes out, and in the process, it gets a little bit strange, and I don't know all the, all the different, but she goes in, and she's trying to find Tafiti, this goddess, and, and lest you think I'm being super uh, heretical, C.S. Lewis last week or two weeks ago wrote a whole book on a, a false thing. So hey, if Lewis can do it, we can, we can see Jesus in everything. But note what the most important scene is, she gets to Tahiti and looks, and it's this empty image where this goddess person used to be. And she looks back, and um, she realizes the demon, this evil, crackly, molten lava demon that's been, like, trying to kill her for the last few moments is Tahiti. But she's lost her way. And Moana goes straight toward the demon 
with this green heart, and it's the song that just captures you. But I just, I just find it fascinating that they, the, the, the movie makers see these, this imagery that they play, and the water spreads. She walks through the water, and she looks at this demon who calms down, and she reaches. It's the song, I have crossed the horizon to find you. I know your name. They have stolen the heart from inside you, but this does not define you. This is not who you are. You know who you are. And then, like, they touch, and it's this precious scene where her little forehead with this big demon, and the demon closes its eyes and is redeemed. You and I are the demon. (laughs) We are enemies of God. And yet there's this larger, more real story. And Jesus is coming and saying, I have crossed from heaven to earth to find you. I have come to rescue you. I have come to redeem you. This is who you are. That is the gospel story. And the question for all of us is, is that a fun thing right now in this room as we get ready for Father's Day lunch and we go on our way? Or is that what defines your heartbeat? And the test is this, when the troubles rise, and they rise all the time, are you going to the comforts, not refusing to be comforted, but turning to the things that can kind of rescue you for the moment? I'll call a friend, I'll complain, I'll numb it through alcohol, I'll escape through shopping or pornography or any sort of number of things. I'll turn to so many other things or even religious things. I know what I'll do. I'll just use really bad false theology to sort of feel better about myself, but in no way am I gonna go through this pain to the cross. And yet the gospel insists that we do. The, I think the New Testament parallel to this psalm, for, at least for me, my heart this week has been meditating on us from Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 10, finishes with this unbelievable truth that because of what Jesus has done, we have confidence, the writer says, to enter the holy places by the blood of the cross. I mean, for a Hebrew, that would have been like crazy. And it is, that we actually go into the holy place because of what Jesus has done. He is the great high priest. And then in 12, seemingly picking up right along where that left off, we're told, to look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne. That's our story. That's chapter 10 and chapter 12. Do you all know what happens in chapter 11? There's this large, long, beautiful unfolding of the story of redemption where the writer begins by saying, By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God and so that all that is seen was not made out of things that are visible but are made by God. And then it goes through character after character after character of the Bible saying by faith, they did this. By faith, they did this. What's the point? You are in a story. You are in a part of this large story, and so am I. And everything that's happening in your life is completely governed by God and is an opportunity to not just get back to equilibrium, but to get a closer, more clear view of who Jesus is. And at the end of chapter 11, 
the writer says, since God has, says all of these, referring to the people from the Old Testament, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Meaning they had not seen Jesus while they were on earth. Their life ended before they could see and know of Jesus. But in verse 40, since God has provided something better for us, Jesus, listen to the next line. That apart from us, they should not be made perfect. That's your homework. Go and understand that verse. Apart from you, each of you, put your name, that group of people are not made perfect. Well, the theological answer, of course, is it's the body of Christ. Apart from Christ, they aren't made perfect. But the profound truth is you and I are part of that temple. We are part of Christ. And every detail of your life is a, is a detail that he superintends to bring him glory and to bring you glory. But I promise you, on this side of us understanding that, with this psalmist, it doesn't feel that way. It feels horrible. We avoid it. We don't like it. And when the true days of trouble come, I mean true major days of trouble where you're like, what in the world is going on? Please hear me. Jesus loves you. And this is part of it. And I don't know how, how that works, but I believe it. And we look forward to that testimony that Jesus will work through the hardships. Let's pray. Father, we need you. We need to be reengaged with the story. We believe it so often in our minds, but let us feel it in our bodies. Let us feel it through faith that we would make so many courageous decisions based on the truth that you have gone from heaven to earth to find us. You've gone to a cross, scorning its shame for the joy set before you. So, Lord, let us enter that story of, of redemption you've already brought us into, but let us be aware of our entrance into that story. Let us live in partnership with you, that this is not just a holding ground. We're not just on some island waiting for heaven. Lord, we are carrying out the plan you have started. Teach us to have that view. Teach us to fall more in love with you, that your image would become clearer and clearer until one day, someday, we see you face to face. We thank you for the privilege, the privilege of being called sons and daughters. In your name we pray. Amen.